to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power all the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. Thank you, Cheryl. Good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met yet, it's uh, great to have you with us this morning as we now spend just a few moments opening up the Word of God. Now, I'd like to begin by telling you a story that I've shared with you before, but I want to tell it to you again because it's a great story and it's helpful. In 1974, a soldier by the name of Hiro Onoda from Japan, emerged from the jungle in the Philippines, still dressed in his military uniform. Now, Hiro had been a soldier in the Japanese army during World War II, but only now, 29 years after World War II had officially ended, was he laying down his arms. Now, why did it take Hiro so long to surrender? The answer, he stayed in the jungle because he did not believe that the war had ended. He was a lieutenant and an intelligence officer in the Japanese army. And when he was initially sent to the Philippines during the war, he was given orders not to surrender. He said in 2010, every Japanese soldier was prepared for death. But as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die. I became an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry it out, I would feel shame. I am very competitive. You don't say, Mr. Anoda. <laughs> he ignored several attempts to get him to surrender. There were leaflets that they dropped. There were search parties that were sent to him. But it was not until his former commanding officer was sent in to relieve him of his duties that he finally laid down his arms. Now the reason that I tell you this story is not just because it's a, a great story, but because the truth is we often do something similar in our relationship with God. Like a leaflet that has been dropped into our angry, chaotic, confused world, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, declares to us that we have peace with God and other gloriously life-changing truths. 
But the truth is, is that we often don't believe this to be true. Now we read these messages, we receive these messages, but sometimes we don't believe them deep down. And we can end up living life in the jungle when we were supposed to live life in freedom with God. This is why we're doing this series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Awake and Alive. Because we want to enjoy the freedom of relationship with God. We want to become awake and alive to God's reality and God's presence in our day-to-day lives. Now, so far in this series, we've gotten honest with God. That was week one. That's the first step we need to take. Last week, we explored the, the beauty, the desirability of God's presence. This week, we want to make sure that nothing is holding us back. We want to make sure that we're not cowering in the jungle when we should be walking boldly in freedom. And so we're going to ask ourselves the question today, do we truly believe the promises of God? Are we walking in light of them? Are we living in line with them? And to explore this question, we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 78. Now, Psalm 78 is a long psalm, and we just read a few verses from it, but what it does is it gives us a history of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. It gives us a summary of their story, from when they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt, remember the book of Exodus and Moses, all the way through to the reign and the rule of King David, which we looked at in 1 Samuel last year. And to be frank, if you read through this psalm, it's not a pretty picture. We're given a summary in verse 8 about this generation, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, the nation of Israel was birthed in a miraculous manner. If you know the story, you remember that God called a man named Abraham. He gave him a series of amazing promises. He turned his unlikely lineage into a unique nation. A nation that was God's own special possession. And they were called by God to make God known in the world. In the way that they lived and loved and and worshipped, they were to show God's goodness and God's power. But Psalm 78 reminds us of Israel's failure to do this. Again and again they grumbled and rebelled and complained and they were often defeated by their enemies. But the psalmist is not writing this psalm to embarrass or to condemn. He's writing to warn and to instruct the next generation. He's writing to exhort them to be different. Verses 6 and 7, that the next generation might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This psalm is in the Bible so that we might learn to take God and his promises seriously. So that we might learn to live our lives in line with them. See, this was the problem for the people of Israel. They had received amazing blessings and privileges and promises from God, but they did not take them seriously. They did not live 
in light of them. We see this in the second half of verse 41. This is the ultimate charge against God's people that is brought in this psalm. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Now what does that mean? What does it mean that they provoked God? Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us. He said they provoked him in this way, in their unbelief and in their failure to receive his promises and to believe them and to act upon them. They stood between themselves and the many blessings which God had offered them and promised them so freely. This is why the King James Version translates verse 41 in this way. They limited the Holy One of Israel. If they had obeyed God and walked with God and trusted God, they would have experienced untold blessings from God, God's protection, God's favour. But they didn't. And so it wasn't to be. They limited the Holy One of Israel. And it's incredibly important for us to examine ourselves in light of this statement in Psalm 78. As those who have come to Jesus, we are the people of God. We've received amazing privileges, blessings and promises. The question is, are we living in light of them? Are we enjoying the blessings of the Christian life as we should? If our personal history with God was recorded in a psalm, what would it say? Would it show that we're enjoying all that God has offered to us or are we guilty of limiting God in some way? Now let me be crystal clear on what I mean when I talk about the fact that we can limit God. What I'm not saying is that we can limit the expression of God's power and goodness as if we can kind of tie God's hands behind his back or or stop him from doing something that he wants to do. No, he is the almighty God, the powerful creator of all. The Bible says no purpose of yours can be thwarted in Job 42. It says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115. What I am saying is that we can limit our experience of God's power and goodness in our lives. We can rob ourselves of some of God's blessings that he wants to pour out to us. We have so many blessings and privileges and promises from God, but when we fail to believe them, when we fail to really take hold of them and apply them to our lives, we are guilty of limiting God, of living in the jungle when we could be living in freedom. And so this is the question that we're going to explore today. Are we limiting God in any way in our lives? Now obviously to answer this question we need to evaluate our lives and evaluate our faith and our relationship to God. And this is a very biblical and good and necessary thing for us to do. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. It's a good thing to look over our lives, to examine them in light of what we see in Scripture. Because in the New Testament, we see clearly what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. We see certain characteristics that are typical of a Christian. And so what I'd like to do today is just to pull together some of these strands so that we can examine ourselves 
to see if there are any part of our lives where we are limiting God, where we're not enjoying God's rich blessings, where we're living in the jungle when we should be walking in freedom. So let me just put before you some of the things that ought to be true of us as Christians. Now obviously this is not comprehensive. We don't have enough time to to be comprehensive this morning. And so I just want to lay before you three characteristics that ought to be true of a Christian so that we can examine ourselves and draw nearer to God. The first is this. Assurance of salvation. A Christian is someone who knows that their sins have been forgiven. Romans 5 verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, made right with God through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is meant to be the normal experience for every Christian. Jesus did not come to die on the cross and rise again so that we would be uncertain about where we stand with God. He came so that we could be certain. And this is so important because you can talk a lot about being forgiven but not really know deep down that you are forgiven. You can understand forgiveness theoretically but not feel it and know it as a reality in your life. And this is so important because theoretical forgiveness never helped anyone. We need felt forgiveness. John Stott wrote a book called Confess Your Sins, which is an alluring title for a book. But in it, he quotes the head of an English mental hospital who said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Do you realise that just by having Jesus, you are complete and accepted right now? Imagine what God could do in and through a group of sinners who feel totally and fully forgiven by God. Marriages could be healed. Families could be reunited. Friends could be reconciled. Anger could be calmed. Joy could overflow. Richard Lovelace wrote a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life and he puts it so well, a little bit technically, but I'll I'll translate it as we go along, is that only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Now what he's saying, very few Christians are actually taking hold of the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ and applying it to their hearts and their lives. He goes on, he says, in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. In other words, they rely on their performance for their right standing with God, rather than relying on Christ's performance on their behalf. He says, few, talking about Christians, few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand on this platform. In Christ, I am accepted. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation, not just at the outset of their Christian lives, but on every succeeding day. In other words, do you want to be awake and alive to God? Do you want to walk in relationship with God? 
then every day when you get out of bed, take your stand on Christ. Look yourself in the mirror and say, Self, you are a great sinner, but Christ is a greater saviour. And in him I'm forgiven, loved and accepted by God. In 1962, German theologian Karl Barth was asked by a student to summarise all that he knew about Christianity, which was a lot, in one sentence. This is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you are wallowing in your past sins and failures, if you are refusing to leave the jungle of condemnation, to step forward into a new life of freedom with Christ, then you are putting a limit on what God wants to do in your life. You are not enjoying to the full what God has freely given to you. If God has declared that you are forgiven in Christ and you have received Christ with the empty hands of faith, then who are you? What right do you have to tell God that he's wrong? Now maybe if this describes you, your next step to becoming awake and alive to God might simply be to give thanks to God. To overflow in thanksgiving to God for all that he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the second characteristic of a Christian, which is rejoicing. God's people are meant to be a joyful people. Why? Because joy is the proper response to salvation. Jesus once said to his disciples, Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Joy is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Peter once wrote in a letter to the church around Turkey, he said, We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul commands us in Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hmm, that sounds a little bit unrealistic to me. Rejoice always? Really? I don't think Paul lived in the real world. I don't think he understood what I'm going through. If he did, he would have eased off a little bit. He would have said rejoice sometimes. Now, I don't mean to minimise what you're going through, but the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words, rejoice always, he understood the reality of life in this world very well. In fact, Paul wrote these words from prison, and not a prison with pillows and TVs and playstations, a prison in first century Rome. And Paul was facing many, many other challenges as well. He understood our pain and our suffering and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote to us, rejoice always. Jonathan Edwards is one of America's greatest ever theologians and when he was 18 years old, he preached his very first sermon. It was called Christian Happiness. The big idea of the sermon was simply that Christians should be happy, should be joyful. Now why should Christians be joyful? The sermon answered that question in three points. Number one, our bad things will turn out for good. Number two, our good things can never be taken away from us. And number three, the best things are yet to come. So simple, so profound. 
Now I know that we face significant challenges, things that would rob us of our joy. I know that some of us face mental health challenges, depression, anxiety and so forth. And the Bible is not ignorant of this reality. David said in Psalm 42, My tears have been my food day and night. In other words, he's saying, I'm so down, I'm so depressed that I can't even eat, I can't even sleep. The Bible is not ignorant of this and neither should we be. Sometimes we face challenges that would rob us of our joy simply because of the season of life that we're in. I mean, some young mums can be so sleepless, so exhausted, they don't even know what day it is, let alone rejoicing in the day that the Lord has made. Others of us, Our grief and our pain can be so deep that the presence of God feels distant and we feel overcome with despair. And don't forget that we have a spiritual enemy who would love to rob us of any joy that we might experience in this life. I'm not saying this is easy or simple or straightforward, but I am saying that for the Christian, we have a reservoir of joy that can go deeper than our very difficult circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot, who knew something about pain and suffering and difficulty, her first husband Jim was murdered in Ecuador by a local tribe doing missionary work. She said, joy is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of God. And she lived this truth because in the years to come, she returned to Ecuador and she lived and served among the tribe that had killed her husband. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been filled with God's spirit. We've been included in God's family. We have the promise of a glorious future. We of all people should be a joyful people. Let me ask you, are you a joyful person? Or does grumbling and and complaining and, and Does that come more naturally to you? Do you rejoice in what God has done for you? Do you give thanks for all that God has done for you in Jesus? Or are you limiting God in this way in your life? Sometimes we fail to rejoice as we should because we've drifted from the God who is the source of our joy. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor, he tells the story of how his dad used to say to him, Listen, son, Half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Be wholehearted for him. That's some wise advice. And he's right, the most miserable people in the world can be Christians who are trying to live with a foot in both worlds. Look to Christ on the one hand, but then look for our security and our satisfaction and our joy in this world. We can end up living on the fence and that is not a comfortable or happy place to live. And if that's you, if if that describes you, then maybe your next step this morning to walk in relationship with God is to give a wholehearted yes to Jesus. To get off the fence and to start following Jesus wholeheartedly. The first mark of a Christian is assurance of salvation. The second, rejoicing. The third I'd like to look at is delight 
in God's commands. Now you probably know this, but there are a lot of commands in the Bible. There's a lot of do's and don'ts. And Jesus said when he came from heaven to earth, he said, I have come to fulfil the law, not to abolish it. Which means we have to do something with the do's and the don'ts because Jesus did not come to take them away. And one of the ways we can think about the law of God, the commands of God in the Bible, is to think of it like a spiritual MRI scan. You know an MRI scan which gives you a detailed image of inside your body? It will show you if something is wrong inside of you. The law of God is kind of like that. It's a divine diagnostic tool that shows us something is wrong with us spiritually. I heard, again, Ray Ortland explain it this way this week. Imagine if everyone in Brisbane obeyed the Ten Commandments for just one day. Everyone, for just one day. They loved God sincerely, loved one another fully. No lies, but only truth. No greed, but only generosity. No sexual folly, but only purity and so forth. For just one day. Wouldn't we wake up the next morning and think, wow, what a great day that was. Wouldn't we think, can we do that again? Now here's the thing. We've had the Ten Commandments all this time. So what's the problem? We are. We are spiritually sick. We cannot obey God's law in our own strength. And God's law reveals our weakness and our need, our sickness. But just like an MRI which will show you what's wrong with you but cannot heal you, the law of God will show us our problem but it cannot heal us. For that, we need outside help. And this is why Jesus Christ came. The law is the scan. Christ is the cure. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's commands. He lived the life that every single one of us have failed to live. And he died on the cross, cursed by God. He died the death that we deserve to die. But when he rose again three days later, he proved that sin had been paid for, death had been defeated, and he poured out the Holy Spirit into our hearts and our lives. And through the finished work of Christ, we get his scan result instead of ours. In him, we are spotless and blameless. And through the endless power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are now enabled and empowered to obey God's law. Not because we have to to earn God's love, we already have God's love. But because now, God's law becomes a way for us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. The law of God no longer stands as an impossible burden over us, condemning us. It becomes a good and a trustworthy guide to life in God's world. The psalmist says, It is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows us how to live in a way that is pleasing to God. It shows us how God created us and designed us. This is why John writes in 1 John 5 verse 3, This is love for God. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. The Christian finds in themselves an increasing delight in God's commands. They don't perfectly obey them, but they increasingly want to. And they increasingly find themselves able to. 
Now, do you find God's commands to be burdensome? Do they seem narrow and and difficult and, and restrictive to you? Do you look at maybe other people around you and, and become envious of them? I think, man, if I could only just live like they lived, if I didn't have this yoke around my neck, is your Christianity just a matter of duty and fear? If that's the case, then we're limiting God because the commands of God are not holding us back from true joy. They are an invitation into true joy to experience life as God intended it to be. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, all about the Word of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jesus said in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. God's commands are not the enemy of our joy. They're an invitation into true joy. And so are we limiting God in our lives? Some of the marks of a Christian are an assurance of salvation. Do you have a sense of felt forgiveness? Are you certain that you stand loved and accepted before God because of Christ? Rejoicing. Do you have a deep joy in God? Are you able to have a a joy that can go deeper than your very difficult circumstances and delight in God's commands? Is there an intentionality in your life to seek to obey God? Are God's commands a way for you to please Him and to walk in step with Him? If we feel that in some way we are limiting God in our lives, that we've not stepped out of the jungle into the freedom that God intends, then let us repent and go back to God today. And this is what God says to us when we turn to him in Psalm 81. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is what he wants us to do. Not just to open our lives to him in some small way, but to open up wide, to get off the fence, to get wholehearted for Jesus and to let him fill you with every good gift that he gives. William Carey was a missionary in the 1700s. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. John Newton said in one of his hymns, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's step out of the jungle and into the freedom of life with God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I'll close with this. He says, Do not give yourself any peace until you are enjoying fullness of salvation, until you are rejoicing evermore, until you know God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in a personal manner, until God's commands are joyous to you and not grievous, and until you can say from the very depths of your being, You, my God, are all I want. Let's step out of the jungle and into the freedom of life with God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you for pouring your spirit out into our hearts and into our lives so that we can know you, 
so that we can step out of the jungle into the peace that you have purchased for us. And Lord, where we would admit that we have been limiting you in our lives, we want to repent and we want to turn to you afresh this morning. We want to know that with you is life. Life as you intended it to be. So help us, Lord, as we go from here. Help us to be the people and the church that you are calling us to be. Let us not put any limits on what you are doing in our life for our good and for your glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.